Thank you to those young musicians. Thank you for being here this morning. Let's go directly to the Bible, shall we? Please open your, your Bibles in Luke chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there should be one near you. Years ago, I read the remarkable testimony of a, an American pastor in one of the most difficult cities in our nation, a church torn in its membership by crime that, consist, that constantly threatened them, all the things that come along with living in a difficult place where there's not much hope for a better life. And he said in, in telling the amazing story of what God had done in his life first in breaking him of his dependence upon himself and teaching him to look to Jesus as we've just been singing about, he said something in his book that has always stuck with me, and it boils down to this, that our faith depends on God's promises, not God's instructions. What God tells us to do, in other words, His simple directions to His children are vitally important. We have to obey Jesus. That's what Jesus said. The final phase of discipleship in the Great Commission, we make disciples, we baptize those disciples, and then we teach those disciples to obey Jesus in every respect. That's critically important. But, he said, what fuels your faith to obey God, to be able to do that, is not what God told you to do, but the promises He graciously made you. Your faith is fueled and built on God's promises, not God's commandments. Does that make sense to you? And here's the hard part. Have you ever waited for a promise to be kept? What was that like? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep waiting on God. It's hard to see His Word and the things that He has promised and not see them happen immediately. When would you like His promises to be kept? Yesterday, right? Absolutely. When we come into Luke chapter 2, we're looking at a beautiful picture framed by suffering. Jesus is now an infant. He's been born, and His parents are going to make another journey of a few miles to go to Jerusalem and dedicate Him to the temple. They're observant Jews. They are reading in their Scriptures, and you can see from Mary's song earlier when she was first told that she would be the mother of Jesus, when she starts talking to God, Scripture pours out. She has spent her whole life reading God's promises to Israel, and the amazing thing to her is not that the promises are being kept, but that they're being kept through her life. Her motherhood is going to be the focal point of God's redemptive work in history. It's very instructive to hear people pray. You should listen to yourself pray. Be conscious that you're talking to God when you pray, but see what comes out of you. See if it's just your thoughts or God's thoughts after Him as you speak to Him. Mary is a woman of deep faith. She's been living on these promises, and now she and Joseph are going to the temple to dedicate Jesus. Look with me in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, Luke 2, verse 21, when He was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel when he was conceived in the womb. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, because in Mosaic law, a woman would be ceremonially unclean for a number of days after giving birth, and now she's going to go offer a simple offering of dedication and a simple offering for sin to remind herself this is the way that God kept the nation focused all of its existence on their need for Him and His holiness, that they couldn't possibly approach Him without a sacrifice being made, that they couldn't walk in on their own terms into God's presence. And they know that, and they're going to observe it. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And that means it's another one of those many things that God told Israel to do. The firstborn son you will set aside for me. He'll be called holy, in other words, set apart. He will be dedicated in a special way, and you will always remember that the first boy born into the family They're all mine, but he in particular must be dedicated ceremonially to me. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, we're a long way from our culture, aren't we? I saw a newborn this this weekend. It never occurred to me to bring animals to the hospital. We prayed over that beautiful little baby, but we're a long way from home. What's going on here? They're offering those simple offerings of dedication and a remembrance that they need a sacrifice that is greater than anything they can do on their own to enter the presence of God, and that simple little sacrifice, did you see what they offered? What is it? Two little birds. You know what that tells me? They're poor. They have chosen legitimately under the law the smaller of two offerings. If a family had no money, instead of offering a lamb and a dove, they could offer two doves, and that's what Joseph is doing. And then they're in the middle of all that, and then God starts pointing at the way that He kept His promise. What follows is an explanation in the lives of two strangers of how God kept His promise to save us. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Wow. I'm not told how old Simeon is, but the definite sense from everything that follows is this is an old man who has been waiting a long time. And he uses a prophetic phrase drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures, drawn from our Old Testament. He is waiting for what? He's waiting to see the Savior, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, the one that God chose to keep all of His promises to Israel, but it says He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The nation needs comforting. I think in 2016 we understand that a little better than we did a few years ago, don't we? Don't we need comfort? 
If you've been paying attention, it's been a very hard week. Very hard week. I'll tell you the secret, every day in America is hard. Talk to people who deal with people for a living and ask them, what is life in America like? It's hard. Many parents go through jobs and keep a professional face on, but they are quietly heartbroken because of the lives of their children. Many people keep a professional face to raging addiction that controls their every thought. As I told you last week, we periodically have these four-year celebrations of misguided hope that we think if we can just get the right person in office, it will all be better. That hope in any single human being is being destroyed before our very eyes as never before in my lifetime. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. And they had a lot more pain and a lot more suffering in the waiting than we did. Israel had been promised when Abraham was first chosen by God to start the nation before there was an Israel, before there was a Jew, before there was circumcision, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through his descendants. That through one childless man, because that's how God was going to get the credit, every clan on earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Comanche, Navajo, Apache, Taromara in Mexico, Irish and Scottish, Jewish and the many, many nations of Asia, all across Africa, all of those different colors and tribes and languages and customs, each of them away from God in their own special, horrible way, they would all be blessed. And Simeon was a righteous man and a devout man, and God had spoken to him as he did in the days of the Old Testament. He had given him a special guidance from the Holy Spirit and had made him a wonderful promise. Simeon, you won't die until what? Until you see my promised salvation. Wow. How would you get up in the morning if you had that kind of promise behind you? That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? Because we're waiting for so much comfort and consolation, especially and primarily the return of the Lord, but we have no assurance that it'll happen in our lifetime. Simeon did. And that's why he came into the temple and did something rather extraordinary. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, plural on purpose. It means nations. It means tribes. It means groups a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. 
and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts for many hearts will be revealed. Moms, how would you like that pronounced over you at your child's dedication? That's a hard word, isn't it? God's not done. There's another stranger who's going to join this scene. I'm not sure how old Simeon was. I'm not explicitly told, but I definitely get the sense that he was an old man who was walking faithfully day by day, righteous and devout, waiting to see God keep His promises, because now he says, I'm ready to go. I've been your servant. Now I leave in peace because you have kept the word you promised. Everything you said came true. But another person joins them. And there was a prophetess, in other words, a woman who speaks the Word of God, not predictively, but explaining the Word of God. There are a few of these in the Old Testament, and one I can think of in the New Testament. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Imagine Anna's life. Has that been happy for her? Did you see what little we're told of her? She was married for how long? And then what happened? She was widowed. And now she's an old woman. Children are not mentioned. Perhaps she is a woman alone. And what she's dedicated her life to instead is teaching people the promises of God and fasting and waiting and praying upon God to keep His promises. What's going on in this story? Here's how God keeps His promises. We're told this, remember, because Luke wants the readers, especially his Gentile readers, like Theophilus, the man he wrote the book to, who were so far removed from the customs and the promises made to Israel to understand specifically how God kept His promise to save us. And here's the first thing we're told. The salvation of God is intensely personal. It's Jesus and no one else. Look back at Simeon's song. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Simeon says, I'm ready to die now because I've seen your salvation. And tell me, let's study the Bible together. What was he looking at when he said that? Jesus. Where was Jesus at that moment? in Simeon's arms. We read these stories as if they were the most ordinary things in the world. Here is a poor young couple who has come about eight or nine miles to Jerusalem with a poor family's offering, and they are simply obeying what God told them to do as reminders of their need of salvation, and they're looking forward to the Savior. In the middle of all that, a man comes and takes their infant child in his arms and starts singing to God. What a moment. What's he telling you? It's personal. It's Jesus and no one else. Now, 
The Scripture tells that over and over again. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter and John have performed a miracle of healing to validate the name and the presence of Jesus. And they say, if we're being examined because of the miracle that we've done today, here's what you need to know. The Jesus you crucified, God has resurrected from the dead, and there is salvation in no one else. There's not another name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and only Jesus. Now, you tell me, is that a popular idea? In 21st century America, right on the edge of hate speech, right? That's what we've come to. I need you to know this as well. That's controversial, and it always has been. Jesus has always been opposed. Look back at what Simeon said to Mary. Verse 33, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them. This is a strange blessing. Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is what? Opposed. Since when has Jesus been opposed? Always. He's a few weeks old. And in his blessing and his praise to God, he says to Mary at what should be a great, great moment for her, and it is because we're told in that quiet little verse that Mary and Joseph marveled at the things that were said about Jesus. They've already experienced a great deal from God. Why are they still marveling? Well, how do you ever get over the fact and how do you ever get your mind around that a son born to you is going to be the one that keeps all of God's promises. Could you handle that in your family? Not in the slightest way to be irreverent, but just to help you humanize it in the family of Jesus. This is our brother, the very Son of God. This is my son, the one David spoke of 1,000 years ago. It's just, it's mind-shattering. She can't get over it. She can't stop marveling. And in the middle of her meditation, and we're already been told by Luke that Mary is treasuring up all these things. She's pondering what all these things may mean. She's continually awashed and embraced by the grace of God that all of this is going to come true in her life and through her simple, obedient trust in God. And then Simeon says, this child, he's going to reveal everyone's heart, and he's going to be opposed and spoken against all of his life. And then the worst part, Mary, a sword will run through your soul. Man. Jesus has always been controversial, and if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you're just going to have to embrace that. 
You can't be a faithful disciple and a faithful witness to Jesus unless you embrace what has always been true of Him, that He will bring controversy and division always. Because no one can be no one can stand publicly in front of people and claim to be the fulfillment of all that God ever promised to the entire world and not get a reaction. And see, one of the difficult things and one of the decisions that we'll have to make as a church, because it feels like great, great sections of our country, including Christians have already decided is whether we want to be popular or faithful. Because this Jesus-only stuff, that's always been controversial. Israel said it was too inclusive. In their understanding, the Gentiles were the very thing that opposed God. The name Gentile, in other words, non-Jew, That was emblematic and representative of everything that it meant to stand outside of the promises of God. Even in the teaching of Jesus, He said, when you pray, don't pray like who? Don't pray like the Gentiles. They just repeat themselves endlessly, thinking that because they say many words, they'll be heard. Don't behave like the people who don't know God. And yet, here is Simeon saying from the very beginning, looking back to Scripture, look at verse 32. Here's who Jesus is, a light, of re- a light for revelation to the who? To the Gentiles and a glory to who else? To Israel. Jesus will be the glory of Israel because He will be a law-keeping Jew from birth. That's why He was circumcised. He was a Jew, and God is going to glorify Himself. In other words, God is going to absorb all the credit by saving the entire world through a despised child of Israel who didn't have any traction, any leverage. In fact, everything that's being done here in this story and all the other stories about Jesus is being done under the watchful eye of Rome. And there's a guard tower that stands to this day. There's a place where Roman soldiers garrison themselves overlooking the temple. Why? Because the finest soldiers of the ancient world were ready to come down at any moment to crush any kind of insurrection or rebellion that took place in the name of religion. Can you imagine worshiping by machine gun? making eye contact with heavily armed people on your way into worship, that was the Jews' everyday experience. And this Savior, He's going to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. The most amazing thing, and it brings your whole Bible into focus, is this is what God had always promised in Isaiah 700 years before Christ. Isaiah wrote this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He's speaking of Israel. In the former time, he, God, brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are just Jewish tribes. But in the latter time, in other words, in the day when God keeps his promises, 
He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the... What's it say there? Why does Isaiah speak of Galilee of the nations? Because their geographical location bordered the foreign nations that had always opposed them. And in virtually every invasion, they were the first to be conquered. Galilee was a tough place to grow up when Israel wasn't doing very well because theirs would be the first border to be defeated. They would be the first people killed and the first families enslaved. And God says, in that very place, in the place of your humiliation, in the quiet little breadbasket of the country where fishermen like Peter ply their trade to feed the rest of you, knowing that one day Assyria was going to pour over those very borders and that Rome was going to have garrisons and soldiers anywhere of the kind that any Roman soldier could tell any Jew in the day of Jesus, hey, you, carry this for me. Can you guess how far he had to go? One mile. That's why Jesus said, if you're compelled to go a mile, go two. That's how you prove you're a Christian under oppression. You don't just knuckle under the law. You surprise that pagan by smilingly going the second mile. That's where our expression comes from, that we went the second mile. That's one of the early instructions that Jesus gave the disciples, and He did that as the counterintuitive, completely loving and gracious way to witness to Him in the middle of the worst kind of oppressive darkness, including military occupation. But Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was born, He made this promise. In the Galilee of the nations, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who have walked in darkness… In fact, read this verse with me. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And the only reason that happened is Jesus Christ. God always had His mind on the nations. Paul, the zealous religious Pharisee, understood it once he trusted Christ. In Galatians 3, verse 28, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, verse 8, Paul wrote this, and the Scripture, which is to Paul is the Old Testament, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, read it with me, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So how long did God have the nations in mind? Always. That's good news for almost everyone who's in this room. Are you a Gentile like me? There's a Cohen on my father's side. But the rest of us, we're German and Cherokee. We're Gentiles. We're people outside the promises of God. God made no specific promise to Europe. He said nothing to my father's Germanic ancestors. He said nothing to my mother's Cherokee ancestors. But he did. Because when God first spoke to Abraham before there were ever Jews, God, for the Scripture, 
God's written word, his promise for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, not by striving, not by keeping religion, not by doing their own rituals, but by simple trust in his promise, that same scripture preach the gospel, in other words, proclaim the good news beforehand to Abraham, saying to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Why is that in quotes? Because that's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, before there was even circumcision. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? If this sounds way too theological and historical, let me tell you why this is good news. You stand on the crest, surrounded by, embraced by, covered and saved by, living in the day where God kept every single promise He ever made through Christ, and it's personal. His name is Jesus. It's not a competing worldview. It's not a philosophical system. It's not a way to make anybody's life better, though it often and usually does that too. We're not choosing among competing ideas simply because we were raised by this, this way in the West. No. We're standing in the presence of God's personal promise kept reduced to simple human flesh that can be taken up in the arms of a stranger and an old man can look into a baby's face and say, Lord, your servant's ready to go in peace because I'm looking at your salvation. And he's not old enough to understand who I am or speak my name or understand what I'm saying in blessing and praise to you, but I'm looking at your salvation and his name is Jesus Christ. It's personal. Israel said it's too inclusive. There's no way that God had the whole world in view. He made that promise to us. No, that's why the Scripture says, revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. God will glorify Himself by keeping the promises He made to Israel, but the whole world will benefit. But that's not what our world says today. We don't say that Jesus is too inclusive. What does our world say? Too exclusive. Too narrow. Have you heard that? It's, I don't know, hateful, racist, imperialist. I mean, I've heard it all in having conversations. I had a man on a plane tell me, he said, I think you're a good man, but you're painfully narrow. And I said, sir, my faith is exactly as wide and broad or narrow as Jesus himself. That's the shape of my faith. Why? Because he's the only one that God used to keep all these promises publicly. This was all done in the sight of the entire world. And look in verse 35. Simeon said to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Please keep this in mind as you keep walking with Jesus. And if you're not a Christian today, same thing is true. Nothing reveals the human heart like our response to Jesus. That's what he does. When you hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus, you stand at a crossroads. That's why Simeon said to Mary, this child will be a sign that is opposed. 
This child will mean the rising of some and the fall of others. And a sword's going to run through your own soul because ultimately the verdict of the nation of Israel and the entire world, the Gentile governors and rulers that conspired to bring it to pass, the entire world will gather against the promise of God in Jesus Christ and they will end his life on the cross. That's the sword that's going to run through Mary's soul. She's going to watch it happen because that was promised too. So when you read the Gospels and when you pray, understand, then and now, Jesus stands both as a good shepherd to draw his flock in and a stumbling block to others who refuse to believe him. And your heart will always and continually be revealed, even as you follow Jesus as a genuine Christian, the state of your heart is known in how you respond to him. So when my Little sister in Christ, Michelle Wingo, gets saved, hears the gospel, and simply believes it, and then I tell her, now, the next step that Jesus told you to do is to be baptized, and she said, when can we do that? That's amazing. That's the Lord, because it's that personal. Not only that, folks, It's not only personal, it's deeply controversial, and the end of this passage tells me it is ever so costly. See, this whole story of these two people, these two, I believe, both old people, Anna for sure, that came and saw Jesus and sang over him, and in Anna's case, he immediately went out. It says in verse 38, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a lot of pain and a lot of waiting wrapped up in their stories. What does faith do? Faith takes God at his word and keeps obeying him. at the risk of getting way too personal. The weakness in our day, in our American brand of Christianity, where we stand today, is that our faithfulness to Jesus sometimes is willing to bear no cost for it. Jesus said to love our enemies and to pray for them. That's costly. Wouldn't you rather pray curses down upon them? Ask God to smite them and volunteer to be the smiter? Jesus said to give generously. In fact, he told his disciples, sell what you have and give alms to the poor. Your reward will be great in heaven. In other words, those of you who have already left so much, don't have much left, get liquid. Sell what you do have so that you have something to give. Jesus himself went Sabbath after Sabbath into synagogues and opened up the Scriptures and explained that they all pointed right back to him. When we read two chapters over in Luke chapter 4, you know what they'll try to do when he points to the Scriptures that are the fulfillment of him? They're going to try to kill him. He'll have to use the very faculties of God to escape people in his hometown. It's just absolutely amazing. 
It's costly, in other words. And here is the greatest cost, and here's our example. Christ died for our sins, Paul says, according to the Scriptures. Anna turned the greatest grief that any woman could have to be widowed young, apparently before she could ever have children, which should have subjected her to a lifetime of being exposed to all kinds of financial risk and have no protection. She turned that instead into devotion to God. And in her old age, she went out and said, I've been telling you about God. Run to the temple. Hurry. You might get to see his salvation in person. What makes a Christian a genuine Christian is the willingness to love Jesus so much and trust Him so deeply while we wait for His promises to be kept in our day that we're willing to suffer with Him and for Him. I know that's true because Jesus looked at His disciples and said, if any one of you would be my disciple, you must do this. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and do what? Follow me. Come die with me. Why? Because he's already given us eternal life. There's nothing to risk. There's nothing to lose. At least nothing that really matters. What are we losing these days? Popularity. Credibility. From time to time, elections. What's it matter? Every promise was kept in Christ. If you are one of those who has been blessed by His grace and God did for you what He did for me, He softened your hard, rebellious heart, and He made you give up on yourself and trust Jesus, you're saved. You have eternal life. And your rescue came at the cost of His suffering. That's the beauty of it. What's the very worst thing that could happen to you here on earth? What's everyone afraid of? Why do we buckle our seatbelts? The very worst thing that could happen to you is to die. And then what? Heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is that so bad? Is life here so precious that it must be clung to along with popularity and credibility and to be well thought of? Must that be grasped at all cost? Absolutely not. Simeon didn't. Anna didn't. Jesus didn't. Neither should we. You see, this whole thing about preaching the gospel of Jesus, that's why we do it. Our rescue came at the cost of His suffering, and this is why we tell the world of Jesus. It's not easy. It's glorious. So whatever promise you're waiting on that you found in God's Word, and it's hard to wait, keep waiting. Keep trusting. He will not let a single one of His words fall to the ground unanswered. He already kept His greatest promise in sending you His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Him, my invitation to you right now is that you would come running to Jesus for salvation you would say, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for thinking I could ever save myself. I want you to save me now. And Christian, if you already have that security, 
Get on to what He told you to do next. Obey Him in every single thing He told you. Not because you're going to earn it, but because you already have it. And He has absorbed every single possible risk to you, including the final enemy, which is death. And even if you die, all that's going to do in God's glorious plan is usher you straight into the best thing of all, which is eternal life with Him. There's nothing to fear and nothing to lose. Let's pray. Take a moment now for yourself and just ask yourself, are you absolutely certain you're following Jesus? Are you sure you're saved? Have you wondered, have you thought that coming to church here will help? Coming to this church will only help if you hear the gospel and believe it. That's it. Coming here, being in our programs, giving offerings, serving, volunteering, being the best volunteer our church has, that will do nothing for you until and unless you believe in Jesus as your Savior. If you haven't, my invitation to you is to turn to Him right now and say, Lord, please forgive my sins. And if you have that security, and I'm preaching to myself now, Bruce, why don't you more readily obey Him? Why don't I love my enemies? Why don't I pray for them? Why don't I witness? Why don't I bear witness to anyone and everyone I can? Why don't I give more confidently and more generously? Jesus said that treasures would wait for me in heaven if I did. Why don't I trust that promise? If you're not a Christian this morning, my single simple invitation to you is to turn to Christ right now in prayer and say, forgive me, save me. I'll take your death on the cross in my place. Please save me. And if you already have that, that you would talk to your Savior about what it cost and you and what you need to risk to obey Him next. Father, thank You for keeping every promise You ever made in Jesus Christ. What little You've promised to do that You have not yet done, You will do through and because of Jesus. Thank You. Help us to look for comfort and consolation and salvation to no one else. Help us to have your heart for our friends and family who don't know you. Help us to bear that social risk and cost to be faithful witnesses. And I ask you, Lord, simply, humbly, in the name of Jesus, if there's one friend here that doesn't know you, I pray that right now they would turn and ask you to save them. Give them the grace and the humility to do that right now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.